Hello and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take a look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I'm your host, and this is episode 32 of Doc Tell Me More and our second episode of Doc Making the Rounds. And whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. I truly do appreciate it. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I would appreciate a follow um, at Doc Tell Me More. Got 32 followers, so I feel, you know, that's a it's a long way from the one follower we had for a long time. So thank you all that are following my Twitter account and, and listening to Doc Tell Me More. Well, last week I mentioned that I'm having a, a kind of a change in my recording pot, uh, routine here where as I am researching for my bigger episodes that can sometimes take a month or more to research for, I want to re- do a, a, a weekly podcast that's a lot shorter and that's where the whole Doc Making the Rounds uh, title is coming into play. And so my goal is to keep these episodes about 30 minutes or less and I'm going to talk about a number of different topics. Um, I think the format I'm going to kind of follow on is I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about a documentary I've watched recently that um, was interesting but maybe didn't warrant an in-depth look. Um, Some current things going on in sports that I might want to talk about or other topics. And then also just an update on the bigger um, research that is going on for my bigger episodes. So let's dive in here as we look at Doc making the rounds. Uh, First thing I want to talk about is I did watch um, a documentary um, on Netflix that came out about Manti Teo, which is a really interesting documentary. And for a little bit, I thought about making it into actually a full episode of Doc Tell Me More. I I just couldn't uh, really get enough information to really... uh, make it a full-length episode, but it was a super interesting uh, um, documentary and really encourage you to watch it. So um, a little bit about Manti Teo and what makes his story interesting is that he was a football player uh, from the state of Hawaii. He's actually a two-time Gatorade Hawaii Player of the Year. He was a high school American. He was one of the top high school um, linebacking prospects in the country, and he had 30 offers, and he actually decided to go to Notre Dame and pick Notre Dame over uh, USC and, and BYU, which was a big deal because USC was kind of the premier program for good players from Hawaii to go to, as well as BYU, because Hawaii has actually a large Mormon population, and so it was kind of a surprise he picked to go to a Catholic school um, in Notre Dame. And so big things were expected out of Manti Teo. Um, and, you know, he played pretty decent as a freshman. He got some playing time and had five and a half sacks. He really kind of started to explode his sophomore year where he had nine and a half uh, um, tackles for loss, a sack, and a forced fumble. Let me backtrack. As a freshman, I said five and a half sacks. I meant five and a half tackles for loss. But he really got put on the map his junior year where we had five sacks, a forced fumble, and 13 and a half tackles for loss. Now he was projected as a potential first round pick after his junior year, but he ended up uh, coming back for his senior year, and um, which was a really big deal for Notre Dame because Notre Dame over his first three years, had slowly gotten better. They were 6-6 six six his first year. Then Charlie Weiss was fired. 
And then in his sophomore and junior year, um, he went eight and five after uh, Brian Kelly took over. And so there was a lot of talk that his senior year, Notre Dame could be pretty good. And so he came back for his senior year. Um, he actually only had five and a half tackles for losses, but he had seven interceptions that year, which is just kind of unheard of for a linebacker. Um, and Notre Dame ended up going uh, to the national, they were 12-0, and and they ended up going to the national title game to face Alabama. And um, and then on top of that, Manti Teo ended up becoming a Heisman Trophy finalist, which is extremely rare as a purely defensive player. Um, and actually since 1935, there have only been uh, let's see, 11 defensive players who finished top five voting um, in the Heisman that were just defensive players. And so, um, uh, and that's that's actually through this past year, even current. So it's really rare to be a defensive player as a finalist. Uh, he ended up not winning um, the Heisman. Johnny Manziel won that year, and Johnny Manziel had 3,700 yards Passing, 26 touchdowns, 9 interceptions. He also had 1,400 rushing yards and 21 TDs. And so he was a really good um, good pick. And he was actually the first freshman. I think, was he freshman or sophomore? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'm pretty sure Johnny Menzel, I should probably double check that, was a freshman when he wrote one. He might have just been a redshirt freshman. The other finalist was Colin Klein for Kansas State, who had a pretty good year as well. Um... But Notre Dame ended up going to the national title game, ended up losing pretty badly, 42-14. to 14. But really one of the best years Notre Dame has had in the last 20 years. Manti Teo had one of the better defensive years um, in, in the last 20, 20, 30 years as well. Was a projected first-round pick, so it's a really nice story. And if you don't know the story of Manti Teo, you're probably like, uh, okay, big deal. He was a good player. Why did they make a documentary about him? Especially since you probably haven't heard much about him because this happened, um, you know, uh, 2012 was when his senior year was. This is 10 years ago. Well, the big thing that Manti Teo is famous for was um, the story of his alleged girlfriend. And he uh, started a... a uh, how do I want to say this? So he became really famous during his senior year, not just because of his play as a linebacker, but because of like a heart-wrenching story of his grandma died, which was true. But his he also had this girlfriend that died um, within a day, I think, of his grandma. And so he had these two really big tragedies happen to him. And he kind of used that as motivation for the rest of his year. And so he was just a huge inspiring story for the nation. A great good player, overcomes tragedy, kind of the all-American uh, you know, guy, and leads us in the championship game. What I, it eventually came out that um, the, his girlfriend wasn't actually real. And he had actually gotten catfished by... Um, a, a guy actually from Hawaii. Now, this guy currently um, has transitioned and identifies as a woman now. But Manti Teo dated this woman for 
oh, a year or so and didn't know that she wasn't real. Now, I won't lie, at the time, I thought when it happened, I'm like, how can you have a girlfriend that, um, and not know she's not real? And I remember kind of, I'm not really ridiculing him at the time. I just didn't really, it just didn't make sense to me that someone could have it, be in a relationship with someone and not know that they didn't exist and be so devastated by their death even, even though they didn't exist. Well, the documentary, which is uh, two episodes, really shines a light into his side of the story. And when you watch the documentary, you, you can really see how he was just a, a really, uh, just like most college kids, he, he was very naive. And, and he was part of kind of that social media uh, generation who they interacted a lot online with people through Facebook or through Twitter or obviously through texts and phone calls. And um, it was pretty, I think we know now it's pretty common to have a relationship with someone online and probably not see them, but it was pretty new back then. But they kind of played some of, you hear in this documentary, the voice of this person and who really sounds like a woman. And so, and, um, Manti Teo had actually asked some of his cousins if they knew this girl because this girl, this person that was pretending to be a girl, said she knew her cousins and her cousins actually vouched that they knew this girl. Now they were mistaken actually. They, they, they thought it was another girl he was talking about but Manti Teo was told by people he trusted, yeah, that, that, this is a real person. And, and Manti was so busy trying to become a great football player and go to the NFL that he didn't have time to meet her. And then all the times he tried to meet her, wanted to meet her, this person would, would say no. And so you watch this documentary right now, and you really can understand how someone can date somebody for a year or two, not meet them, and then also get tricked into them not being real. And so it really gave me a little bit more fresh perspective on, you know what? I think we were really unfair um, towards Manti Teo when this happened. And you kind of feel really bad for him that um, he had to go through that. And it had a really big effect on his pro career because he was actually a first-round pick projected. And then this story came out, and he dropped to the second round. He lost a lot of money, and he actually struggled for a while. He, he played for the Chargers for four years. In those four years, he had 15 tackles for losses combined, one-and-a-half sacks and two interceptions. Um, and then after that, he went to New Orleans for three years, had – fumble recovery and seven tackles for losses. He was signed by Chicago and I don't he didn't play any games with them. I think he got cut in the preseason. But he had a pretty disappointing career for someone who was really decorated in college. And he talked about how that um, incident, that catfishing incident, really affected him and really kind of messed him up mentally that he couldn't perform on the field. He wasn't focused on the field because everybody was talking about Manti Teo, the guy that got tricked, um, as opposed to Manti Teo, the player. And so it was really a powerful documentary to really get you to understand um, the vulnerable side uh, and how someone can be tricked and how it can affect them. And he seems to be doing a lot better now. He lives in Hawaii, it sounds like. And I think, uh, I think, you know, people should give him a, cut him a little slack and give him a little grace for what he went through there. But a really good documentary 
on Manti Teo and on Netflix that I really encourage you to watch. So kind of moving on to um, just some kind of current news, uh, current news, and I want to kind of stick with sports here for for this week on Doc making the rounds. Um, so last week I re- recorded a podcast. I think during that podcast I recorded Albert Pujols hit his 700th home run, and so I, I missed kind of talking about that last week. So um, did want to mention that it's obviously pretty rare, rare for someone to hit 700 home runs. Pujols has done it. Babe Ruth has done it. Uh, um, Hank Aaron has done it, and uh, Barry Bonds has done that. And Albert Pujols is actually one of only two people, along with Hank Aaron, to have 700 home runs and 3,000 hits. And to me, Hank Aaron is still one of the more underrated players of all time. Um, Hank Aaron all time is fifth in war. He's batted over 300 for his career. He's fourth in runs scored. He's actually third in hits. He wasn't just a home run hitter. He was 13th in doubles. He's obviously number two in home runs, number one in RBIs, number one in extra base hits. And he's first in total bases. And kind of the crazy stat about total bases is Albert Pujols has actually moved into number two. But Hank Aaron is more than 11 miles, has 11 more miles of total bases than the number two guy, which is Albert Pujols right now. So that's just a crazy stat. And so kind of when, when Albert Pujols is hitting a 700th home run, I think it's a good time to just recognize that Hank Aaron is a great player. People forget about him. But obviously, Albert Pujols has had a great career, and, and that says a lot from someone like me who is a Chicago Cubs fan. He's obviously a first ballot Hall of Famer. I thought what was really interesting about Albert Pujols' chase for 700 is that he needed 21 home runs this season to hit 700, and I really didn't think he was going to do that because he's getting older, uh, he hadn't really had a, a great last couple years um, in the majors. And, and actually, let's see, the last time he had hit 20 home runs in a season was, you know, 2019. And so I just didn't think he'd do it. Well, and I, I was looking right because through August 6th, he only had seven home runs. So he was still 14 home runs away. So it was looking like it was unlikely to happen. And people were actually talking about, ah, is he going to come back? Just to, just to get to 700, you know? Well, in the next 39 games, from August 6th to about uh, September 17th or, or so, he hit 14 home runs in 39 games to get to 700. So he just went on a ridiculous tear. And I thought what was very weird about the whole situation, not to be a conspiracy theorist here, but almost every time he hit a home run, you watch the replay, and it's just like right down the middle. And it's just like, what are you doing, pitchers? Because Pruels doesn't have quite the uh, abilities he did when he was younger because he's getting older. But if you throw center cut fastballs to players, any major league player, they're probably going to hit it out. So I just found it fishy that almost every ball he hit was thrown down the middle. And so that helped him out a lot. So... Interesting to me, but again, props to Pujols for uh, hitting 700 home runs. And please retire so you don't have to continue to destroy uh, my Cubs teams anymore. And Yadier Molina and Melina and Adam Wainwright need to retire too. So, um, anyways, also this week in baseball, um, Aaron Judge. So he had 60 home runs last week. He hit 61 to tie Roger Maris. 
for fourth on the all-time single-season home run list. Bonds is at 73. McGuire has 70. Sosa has 76. Then you have Judge and Maris at 61 and Ruth at 60. So those six players are the only players to hit over 60. Sammy Sosa actually hit over 63 times and McGuire did it twice. Now, as we all know, um, Bonds and McGuire have admitted in one way or another they did they used steroids. Bonds admitted he accidentally took it in a grand jury. Mark McGuire admitted to it in an interview. And Sammy Sosa hasn't tested positive or admitted to it, but he has been implicated. So a lot of people are saying, well, hey, Aaron Judge is the actual real home run king because he has like, got the clean home run record. And so I just kind of thought that was interesting to think about is, is, is Aaron Judge the real single season home run king? Now, when steroid testing came about about 15 years ago, there was a lot of people that villainized and demonized the steroid users and have really worked to get them uh, not elected to the Hall of Fame or their accomplishments set aside. When the last five years or so, there's been a really big groundswell for people to, um, to accept those players now. And so that's been... A really big change from my perspective that people now look at Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire of being okay with the fact they use steroids. Now, what do I think about it? Well, it's kind of touchy with me because so I, I, I ran cross country and track in high school and college and I, and I coach cross country and I coach track. I watch a lot of track and field and track and field over the last 30, 40 years has had a huge doping problem. And they're getting a little bit better at it, but there's a lot of world records now that you look at that were set by people who were probably dopers. And so as a track fan, doping has ruined the sport. And so I have a hard line on dopers and steroid users. And so with that, so to me personally, anybody that has used steroids, I kind of don't count. I throw out their accomplishments because they cheated. And so as far as I know, I do think Aaron Judge has the clean record. But at the same time, I just don't think that... Where is the line to throw out a record? You know, because let's say you throw out Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa... What if it comes out later, Aaron Judge uses steroids, use steroids? Or what if Roger Maris did something we don't know about? And so it, it's kind of like you start pulling on a thread and, and, you, and you don't know where it's going to go. So my, my thoughts is this, though. That in, in Ken Burns' Baseball, Episode 10, there's a guy that says there, there is no asterisk. The asterisk is whatever it is in your mind. And so to me, you keep the records as it is. Bonds is the home run king, but when you look at Barry Bonds, you know his story. You know he used steroids. When you see Mark McGuire, you know he used steroids. You see Sammy Sosa, there's this suspicion around him. So I think that's all you can do. And some people don't have a problem with it, and some people do. And and I'm one of those that do. But unfortunately, not unfortunately, but for record-keeping purposes, Bonds is the king, and there's nothing that... um. They will do about it. Major League Baseball is going to keep it as the record. But with that said, great season for Aaron Judge. I never thought I'd see someone hit 60 home runs again after the crackdown on steroids. And he's at 61, and I kind of hope he goes on a tear over the next week to 
just see how many home runs he can get. All right, here, gone to my last topic here on Doc Making the Rounds, episode two. And I want to give you a little bit of an update on my, my big episode. And so as I mentioned last week, I'm going to be going through Ken Burns' The War documentary, which is on World War II. Uh, I feel really good about my progress so far. I've made a lot the last couple of weeks. I think there's a chance in the, my next episode might actually be the full-on Doc Tell Me More episode. Um, so that's my hope. Now, World War II is such a long, huge topic that I'm not going to be able to talk about everything in those episodes that I want to. So in this Doc Making the Rounds episode, I think what each week what I'll do is I'll talk about one thing that I couldn't fit into an episode. And that's what I'm going to do right here. And I'm going to talk about a really important battle here of World War II that happened early in, in, in the war that I'm not going to get a chance to talk about. And that's the Battle of the Coral Sea. So it's a really important battle. It happened May 4th through May 8th of 1942. Now at this point in time, Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor about five months ago. And they had pretty much taken over the Pacific. Um, their goal was to establish a huge perimeter. They are going to take over a bunch of islands and other um, territory and build a strong defense so that the Allies would be unable to attack the Japanese homelands. Um, and they had kind of accomplished that to an extent, but they were still vulnerable, and so they wanted to improve their position so they could cut Allied shipping lanes and communication lines between Australia and the U.S., so again, um, Australia and Britain had bases, and or excuse me, Great Britain and the U.S. had bases in Australia, where they could kind of stage attacks potentially down the road on Japan, and so Japan was hoping to um, kind of take this advantage away, and so they had a goal of of taking um, Port Mosby, which is in New Guinea, and Tulagi in the southeastern Solomon Islands. And if they felt like they could do this, and they could make a strong enough perimeter defense that the U.S. couldn't, or the Allies couldn't defeat them. Now, unknown to, the, uh, to Japan, the U.S. had cracked the Japanese code, and they pretty much deciphered the entire plan um, of Japan to take Port Mosby. Now, Mosby, or Moresby, excuse me, was considered an important base by the Allies, to start their offensive against Japan and try to work their way back to the Japan homeland. And so Admiral Chester Nimitz ended up sending his four carriers to the Coral Sea, which was in this area, in response to try to keep Japan's plan from succeeding. Now, the Japanese did not expect this. They were not expecting to run into any carriers. And carriers were kind of the big ships of the day. They carried planes and they could coordinate attacks. And so those were the big, one of the big fighting ships. And if you could sink another um, nation's carriers, that was a big deal because they took a long time to build. So Japan did start their um, plan, and they actually took Tulagi on May 3rd, as it was undefended because the U.S. had evacuated it. Um, but the U.S. at this time, their carriers and their ships had entered the Coral Sea undetected by the Japanese. And this set the stage for a two-day ship-carrier battle between Japan and the United States. And so the battle started on May 7th uh, when both sides actually misidentified 
where the other was. And so each country had sent out their planes to kind of scout and try to find the other, other, um, other side to try to bomb them. And both sides thought they saw them somewhere else and they weren't. And, but in this confusion, they actually ran into each other and the U S sunk had two ships that were sunk, but they ended up sinking one carrier for Japan. So that was a big deal. And the success here of the U.S. ended up forcing Japan to postpone their Port Mosby invasion another week. Um, So that that was kind of the big deal on May 7th. As they get to May 8th, the second day, both sides hope to launch attacks, some airstrikes, some planes in hopes of finding and damaging the carriers. Uh, Both sides ended up having success. The U.S. hit and damaged a Japanese carrier, and then, but the U.S. of uh, Japan sunk a U.S. carrier and damaged another. Uh, the U.S., up, upon this, hearing about this, decided to withdraw from the battle so they wouldn't have any more losses. Um, so Japan was left with the field, as they would say, But because of their damage to their ships, they had to postpone the Port Mosby invasion again until July. So, and that was the end of the battle. So each side had sunk some carriers. Um, The U.S. had left the field. And the reason why I'm talking about this battle is it's just kind of a weird battle because both sides claimed victory. And you could kind of say they each had a victory in this battle. The Japanese won a tactical victory because they actually sunk more ships. But the U.S. won a strategic victory because they stopped the invasion of Port Mosby. So Japan actually won the battle, but the U.S. actually had um, got the larger benefit from it because Japan stopped the initial operation. So Japan could not go into Port Mosby could not extend their perimeter defense because of what they lost. What also helped is that the Japanese were unable to use um, two carriers in an upcoming battle they were planning called the Battle of Midway, which we'll talk about in the next episode. And that ended up being a huge blow for Japan. And this was actually the first time that a Japanese invasion force was turned back without achieving their objective. And this battle was really the first sign that Japan would not be able to extend their empire. Because at this time, Japan was pretty much considered the greatest army in the world. And people thought they were almost invincible. But this was the first time people were like, yeah, maybe they can be defeated. Now, the Allies were absolutely disappointed with the Battle of the Coral Sea. Um, but it helped greatly in their war effort. And like I said, the delay of the invasion of Port Mosby allowed the Allies time to reinforce it so that when Japan actually would attack Port Moresby in September, they would defeat Japan. And then because of that, um, the U.S. had greater success in the Guadalcanal campaign, which I'm going to talk about next, next episode. And eventually what happened because of this is the U.S. started to turn Japan back and started a long multi-year push back towards Japan to defeat Japan. And so this was one of the subtle turning points of the war, but the U.S. and the Allies didn't know it at the time. But the 
the butterfly effect of this battle was greatly beneficial for the Allies in Battle of the Coral Sea. And this was actually also the, the, the first naval engagement in history where participating ships actually never sighted or fired directly at each other. Because you had these carriers fighting that were sending planes at each other, searching for each other, but the carriers themselves didn't actually see each other or fire on each other, each other, which I thought was pretty interesting. So that was the Battle of the Coral Sea, really important battle that a lot of people don't talk about in World War II history. So I'm getting close to my 30-minute mark here, which is, again, always my goal to stop these Doc Making the Rounds episodes. So I hope you enjoyed kind of this week's um, uh, topics. I encourage you to watch that Manti Teo documentary. Uh, also been some really historic stuff going on in baseball and I hope you enjoyed my quick discussion of the Battle of the Coral Sea and my hope is next week to have uh, a doc tell me more full episode. It might take till Sunday to get it. I might, I'm probably going to have to record it in pieces because it wouldn't surprise me if it's actually close to a two hour episode. There's just so many things to talk about in World War II. But I'll end there. I really appreciate you for listening to this episode of Doc Tell Me More, Making the Rounds. Please give me a follow on Twitter at Doc Tell Me More. And until next time, you have a great day.